This is The Good Life in Early Life, a production of Nebraska Extension. I'm your host, Emily Manning, an early childhood extension educator in Seward County. I want to wish you all a happy fall as the first day of autumn was this past Saturday. Make sure you listen to the very end of this episode to hear a Nebraska youngster describe their fall favorites. In this episode, we are picking up where we left off with Colton and Nicole as we talked about the Gothenburg Impact Center, which was a unique way to solve their childcare gap within their community. In the last episode, we talked about how the Impact Center got started, how they calculated how many spots they would need and how much money this would take, and how to speak about this topic to many different audiences. So stay tuned as we continue our conversation with Colton and Nicole. is wonderful, amazing what you have here in this community in Gothenburg. And I am just astounded and blown away by the work that both of you are doing for your community. Both of you seem perfect for this role. All right. So we had this beautiful, warm, fuzzy moment, but I want to dive into finances because I do think people will be. Yeah, I know. Finances. Yes. But I think people will be interested to know how are your how are you funding this? How are you going to make this happen? Yep. So uh, again, we, we break it down to obviously your capital campaign, but there's still the operational piece too. And can I interrupt you and ask what a capital campaign is? Yep. So we're raising money to build that building. Oh, Um, okay. Yeah. So (laughs) which is fair. Uh, And also important to know, like Nicole said, we did a lot of work during 2020 that included really finalizing plans with the architect and meeting with contractors. And at that time, our cost to put this facility up was just under $11 million which is a lot of money. Don't get me wrong, but it's it's more money than that now um, because of the impacts that we've we felt due to inflation and due to supply chain issues and, and just all of the issues that we've that the construction industry has dealt with over the last four to five yeah. years yeah. to the point where this project will cost over $14 million, well over $14 million. Now, that's a scary number, mm-hmm. but we honestly have not really been too worried about it because of the partnerships that we've built. So how do we get there? In the capital campaign, we will raise a little bit over a million dollars from different state grant funds, uh, community civic center financing fund. Uh, we received some of the ARPA funds to, to expand childcare capacity. Oh, yeah. On top of that, we've got great partners from foundations, primarily out of the eastern part of the state, that understand that not just from the early childhood perspective, but as a, but from a community project perspective, the importance of investing in our communities. And so we have certain foundations that have uh, provided almost four and a half million dollars to date um, to help us put this up. And that, our target was to hit about one third of our capital raise through those those groups. And they they showed up for us. And uh, we're, we really have enjoyed working with them. They've been there every step of the way. We started talking with them five years ago. Hey, we're thinking about doing this. How would you want to be involved? Do you have any input? Do you have any connections that we could make? We didn't ask them for money. We asked them for uh, advice. And that was honestly the most helpful piece with them. The So you would value their advice higher than the money? Oh, I still need the money. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) But here's the thing. So if you're going to ask somebody for money at some point... Don't you want to have the product uh, look the way that they want it to look? 
we had already had a lot of conversations on, okay, how should we not do things? How should we do things um, before we even asked them for money? Because we got that advice from them out of the gate. Uh, so they didn't have to come in and say, well, you guys have completely missed the mark here. We started that communication very early on. So <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll never turn down. Um, but the, the, the last piece of this, so if you look at the state and then the foundation that's a little bit over is five to $6 million, how do we get the rest of the way there? Really, it comes from our local community. And I break that out into two different areas. One is our private, private donors, private businesses and families. We will raise five and a half million from our local community. To put that into perspective, 2017, we opened the YMCA uh, here in Gothenburg, which we are one of the smallest communities in the country to have a YMCA. Very proud Fun of fact. that. Yes. Yes. Um, that was a $5 million project. We raised 3.1 million of that locally. Wow. We surpassed that $3 million mark in about six months here for this project. So mm -hmm. we've raised well over $4 million from the local community. We're still getting that the rest of the way there, but people have been very responsive. And that's not just a single donor. We certainly have mm -hmm. bigger businesses, bigger families who contribute, mm -hmm. but Gothenburg historically doesn't have one person that just funds everything, right? A large number of people that just really throw their weight in, whether it's our banks who are great partners for this project and really led the way, or whether it's an employee at the hospital who has said, I will contribute a few dollars out of every paycheck for the next five years to go towards this project. Wow. It's truly everybody stepping up and becoming a part yeah. of the process. And then the last piece is we are addressing a huge need for our public entities. So like Nicole said, the city was talking through putting up an event center. That's something that our community had said, we want to see this. If they were to put that up standalone, it would cost well over $4 million. Similarly, if you look at the school, again, we're taking away or we're absorbing their preschool, but we've had conversations as a community on the school potentially expanding their childcare efforts or their preschool. Mm -hmm. That's expensive for them. They would need to build more space. What happens if we have state mandated preschool come through federal or state legislation? They mm -hmm. would need to expand that area and it's going to be expensive for them to do so. Mm -hmm. So we did go back to them and say, hey, we are addressing needs that you guys at some point, whether it's now or a few years down the road, are going to need to handle. Mm -hmm. And so they stood up and said, we will contribute towards the capital of this project as well. We'll get a, a million and a half dollars from each the city and the school towards the capital project. So it's wow. braided, blended funding, however you want to describe it. We call it having great partners, but through the state federal funds, through our foundation partners, and then through our local private and public entities, we can get there. That's really amazing. That's all I have to say <laughs> that one, <laughs> that you have found that much funding. And it's really neat to see the community engagement and the community buy-in that everyone values this and sees it as important and gets, gets behind this project and puts forth even just a few dollars from their paycheck. So it's just yeah. literally coming from everyone in the community, which is how, how, how it's happening in your community. I wanted to circle back to kind of a conversation you had earlier, Colton, about wages. And if we were to pay early childhood educators and caregivers what they really deserved, we wouldn't be able to afford them. And you were talking about getting them a livable wage. So how are you, how, why is this important, first of all? And then how is it not adequate right now? Maybe is what we can talk about, kind of like the state of affairs. 
Yeah, so I think when you talk about child care, really the economic model is broken, right? You can't charge your consumer the amount that you need to be able to attract quality employees. And that's why we have a capacity issue. If I'm a teacher or educated in early childhood education, I have no incentive to open a child care facility in rural Nebraska because I can go work for a public institution and get union wages plus benefits, or I can work in a center and make dollars an hour. Well, it's pretty easy to understand why we're running into this issue. Mm-hmm. So when you look at, okay, say we're paying people minimum wage 950 or even if it goes up to 11 or so, when you look at the percentage of that individual's income, if they have a child that needs to go to child care, it's, near, it's about 20% of their household income. That's well beyond what any of our economists say we should be allocating towards child care out of our household income. Really say it should be about about 8%. Wow. Um, Yes. So it all just builds upon itself and it makes the issue bigger, right? Because if I can't attract employees and I can't operate a facility, if I can't charge my people what I need, then I can't pay my employees. So we approached it and said, we, we need to set those, those wages above minimum wage to a point where we can attract quality employees. They will have the ability to bring their kids to a program. Uh, They'll have the ability to get into the workforce. But again, we couldn't increase those rates to our families. And that's really where the city, the school and the hospital came in. Again, if that economic model is broken, you can't charge those private families. We've got to go to those public institutions. And I know we Mm -hmm. are sitting in central Nebraska. I am not a fan of taxes just as much as the tax guy. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, But when we talk about actually providing a solution to this problem, it it has to involve some level of support, not 100%, but some level of support from those public institutions. And our public institutions in this town understood that and really got behind the project. Now, what does that mean moving forward? Um, Because we did just have legislation passed where we're going to see an increase in the minimum wage. Um, right. That will be fifteen dollars an hour in 2026. We're already starting to phase in that increase that has impacted our budget because that will in some ways pass through to those families. Now, obviously, presumably they're going to be making more money if we've seen an increase in their wages. But what I think is is going to be extremely important is our our senators, our state legislature, the unicameral need to understand that this is a pending issue coming down the pipeline for not just the impact center, but child care providers across our state. If we have to tell our providers right now, you're paying people $10 an hour and in two years, you need to increase that by 50%. Yeah. Um, they can't do that. Um, and so we need to be there as a state to support those people. Otherwise, they'll disappear. I mean, they'll just cannot make that happen. You cannot make money appear where where it doesn't exist. I wish we could. I know. I wish we could. It'd solve a lot of problems, wouldn't it? So we're kind of coming to the end of the time that I have for this conversation. Sadly, I've really enjoyed every minute with both of you. Um, And I really want to have some like last advice that you would have for communities who have the same issue with this gap in early education and care spots. What would you tell them? I think the first thing I would say 
is no other community's answer is going to be the impact center. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, it can be overwhelming, but I think every community has a solution. And so it's just some simple steps. I think you quantify your childcare need. Like Colton said, you find the data that's going to resonate with the, with the community, with the businesses, with the economic development, but you quantify that need. Talk to your providers about their waitlist numbers. Use your census data. Talk to your school administration. Get your facts for your community. And then gather your community stakeholders. There are people that are being impacted by this issue in your community. Get them together and ask for their input. Find the local partners who understand the importance, who are are facing this in their businesses or in their families, and ask them to work with you. And then find somebody to tell your story. It can be a coordinator. It can be a volunteer. But find someone who can help you tell your story and then get out in the community and start telling the story. I think every community can find their solution, Mm -hmm. but it's going to take the community to really pull it all together. It comes down to the community and what they want and what looks right. Yeah. Colton, do you want to add on to that? Yeah, I would say we hit on five years, five years. That's how long we've been working on this and even longer. We would have done this in a year if it it could have worked that way. We knew we had the need at that point, but take your time, do it the right way. So you come up with that lasting, sustainable solution. Mm -hmm. It hurts to watch kids, and Nicole and I have seen it, and, and our community has seen it. We see kids that simply do not have have access to essential child care services in our community, and that impacts our kids in the school system. It impacts our teachers, but we're not doing anybody any favors by trying to throw together something um, and, and not having a plan moving into it. So take your time. It hurts to do it, but that is, in my opinion, the way to do it. Uh, and the second piece would be, and Nicole hit on this, the impact center as it is in Gothenburg is not the solution to every community. I have a friend from a, a neighboring community who calls our project the monstrosity um, <laughs> because it's, it is big. It's a large scope, right? We found a way to make it work based on our partners and, and, and our needs as a community, but every community is unique in, in the needs that they face, but we are the same in that we have individuals that want to find solutions. We have access to grant funds from state and federal agencies. We have public entities that not all the way, but a certain extent of the way can help provide the solutions. And if we all work together on it, then we can get there to provide the solution that we need as a community. Great advice. Don't rush. Do it the right way and do it in a way that makes sense for your community. And I think those are so important words to share with Nebraska, because as a Nebraskan myself, I just fully believe that Nebraskans, we are smart. As Colton said, we have the smarts. We are hardworking. We value families. We know this is important. So I believe we can get this done like as a state. I really do. I think we have the know-how. I think we have the skills. If we can just come together, come together and share that common language and share those goals, we can do it as a state. And you guys are helping provide that model of how to do it, providing that inspiration, hopefully to other communities to do the same for themselves and find that perfect solution for themselves. And I hope that can you guys can inspire other communities and that's why I really wanted you on the podcast so thank you so much I've appreciated every minute as I said with both of you and sharing your expertise it's been so lovely how can listeners find out more about you about this project or contact you if they have questions and need advice 
Yeah, so we do have a website, GothenburgImpactCenter.com, that gives some overview on the project itself. Uh, we also have a Facebook page, can follow us, Gothenburg Impact Center. I'm available, be happy to visit with anybody, answer questions, uh, provide resources. My email is GECLC.coordinator at gmail.com, or you can give me a call at 308-529-8784. Perfect. And we'll also put that into, we'll put her email into the show notes if she is comfortable with that. And we'll also put the link to the website in the show notes as well. So you can contact Nicole with your questions. Again, thank you both so much for being on here and sharing your wisdom and experience with this project. This is an amazing, amazing project. So I'm so happy to highlight it. And when is it going to be done? When can we see it? August of 2024. And it's, it's not soon enough. All right. So listeners, check it out in August 2024 and check out their brand new facility because it's going to be amazing. Thank you again, Nicole and Colton. Thank you. Thank you. To switch gears now and answer a listener question that we received in a segment I'm going to call Solicited Advice, where we take questions from you, the listeners, and answer them. Because sometimes it's nice to get answers to the questions that you actually asked for. And the question that we got from this listener is, what is the best way to have guidelines around the use of social media with young children? I'm going to start off with guidelines for screen time for young children first, and then we will cover recommendations that are specific to social media. The World Health Organization gave some guidelines for screen time usage for children five years and under. So for our youngest kiddos from the ages birth to one years old, the recommendation is that they don't spend time with any screens, no time spent on screens at all from birth to the age of one year old. And then when they get older, between the ages of two to four, it's recommended that they only spend 60 minutes of their day in total on screen time. So that means time that they spend watching videos, movies, video games, all that time spent on those activities should only add up to 60 minutes between the ages of two to four. And the reason for these recommendations is that spending time on screens isn't very beneficial developmentally and educationally for children of this age. They learn a lot more by engaging with their environment and reacting and interacting with their environment and the people in their environment and getting that real-time feedback that comes from interacting with their environment and the people within it. So you can help them grow and learn a lot more by limiting their screen time when they are under the age of five. But let's go ahead and get into our social media recommendations and tips. I think it would be helpful to start off with thinking about what social media is and defining what it is. When I think of social media, I immediately think of the really big, established, traditional platforms like Twitter, TikTok, Facebook, and Reddit and Instagram. But social media encompasses so much more than just those traditional big platforms. The Merriam-Webster Dictionary defines social media as forms of electronic communication through which users create online communities, share information, share personal messages, and other content like videos. So with that definition, YouTube is technically a social media platform. Discord is also a social media platform. Discord is often used to stream video games with friends as you are playing it real time. Other games allow you to talk real time in a game, kind of like with a voice call feature. Other games allow you to talk to other players through a kind of a chat box feature. These communication features within video games are technically social media as well. So some of you right now may have the urge to 
totally limit your child from playing video games or using any kind of social media platforms out of safety concerns. And I understand that. And that is your right as a parent to do that. And I encourage you to do what feels right for you and your child. I also would like you to consider that you may be limiting that chi- your child's interest by preventing them from playing video games. And you also may be giving up an opportunity to have discussions around safe usage of social media and also giving up an opportunity to start guiding them on how to safely navigate the online world and to be a critical objective user of social media. So it's a really hard decision to make as a parent and I support you in whatever decision you make. So how do we do this? How do we teach children to safely use social media? Um, The first thing that we can do is to be present when they're using social media. We can sit in when they are playing video games and talking about what they see and hear from other players. And also maybe just limiting the amount of time that they play video games. Also, you can watch YouTube or TikTok videos together and talk about what you're seeing. This can be a great opportunity to discuss misinformation, how these videos might not be as real as they seem. You can also talk about your family values and you can also talk about being a critical and objective user of social media and the information that you are seeing on the platform. You may also want to carefully consider the age that you want a child to create their own social media account. Facebook doesn't allow users under the age of 13 so this might be a helpful guideline for you as a parent or a caregiver but you should still think about your child and when you think it would be appropriate for them to join and when they have the skill to join. And when your child does create kind of a traditional social media account, in order for them to have that account, you might want to make it a requirement that they add you as a friend on the platform so that you can monitor their activities and what they're posting and discuss those things with them as well. And you also might want to make it a requirement that they can only access that account when they are using the family computer that you can easily walk by and see and kind of monitor what they're doing and that they can't have it on a personal device like a tablet or a cell phone because that can make it harder to kind of monitor. I'm not suggesting that you micromanage their usage by going through all their messages and reading everything that they discuss with other users. This can be a violation of their privacy and can erode feelings of trust and respect between you and your child. But by being present in the room, you can monitor their activities and provide a level of supervision without being involved in everything that they do or say online. It also allows you to naturally react when they laugh out loud at something they read or they saw and you can ask them, will you show me what you found that was so funny? And this can just open up that opportunity for them to share what they are doing and what they are seeing online with you. Additionally, you yourself can also model healthy habits and boundaries with social media usage at home. So this could be not engaging in social media platforms during family meals or during family time. You can also limit the amount of time that you spend on social media to model that behavior with your child. And if they have you as a friend on social media, they're also going to be watching what you post and how you post and how you engage with it. So remember that you can serve as a positive role model for your child. And also, So as kind of mentioned in the interview with Dr. Kirkpatrick, think twice before you post photos or videos of your child. You may be really, really proud of your child and you should be. And that's a really natural inclination is to post that and share that with your friends and family. But be aware that your child is not able to consent when they're really young and does not 
always have the knowledge that you are posting this. Um, it also is releasing their image to the public. So just considering safety and their safety, you may want to post photos with their back to the camera or like some celebrities do, they put like an emoji over their child's face if they're facing the front. And if you want to share those funny moments, moments or potentially embarrassing moments uh, with your friends and family just to kind of get some validation and just share what's going on, that's completely normal. But consider sharing that in a less permanent way, such as on a Facebook story or an Instagram story, rather than a post that is a little bit more permanent. So those are just some things that you can think about um, when using social media and helping guide children with social media usage. It's definitely just kind of the tip of the iceberg and there's a lot more information out there, but we wanted to provide some general guidelines and recommendations for guiding children in their usage. If you have other parenting or early childhood questions you would like us to answer on the show, please email our podcast team at earlychildhood at unl.edu. It's helpful for us if you put podcast or podcast question or the good life and early life in the subject line of your email so we are better able to sort through the emails that we get to our team. Also, your question might just be featured on our solicited advice segment on the podcast. So please email us at earlychildhood at unl.edu with your questions. And now, as promised, and what you've all been waiting for, I present the voice of a young Nebraskan. I smile every time I hear this, and I hope you do too. Please enjoy. What do you like to do in the fall? Well, I usually like to play around and jump in the leaves. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's usually not so cold and rainy. Sometimes I see decorations about leaves or signs, I'm not sure. Pumpkins! <laughs> Do you ever go to a pumpkin patch? Um, I only went there once. I sure hope you enjoyed hearing from that Nebraska youngster sharing about what they liked about fall. And with that, this has been another episode of The Good Life and Early Life, a Nebraska Extension Early Childhood production with your host, Emily Manning. For more information on early childhood, check out our website at child.unl.edu. If you like the show, subscribe and tell your friends to listen. The show production team is Emily Manning, Dr. Holly Hatton, Ingrid Lindahl, Aaron Campbell, Linda Reddish, Kim Wellsant, and Katie Krause. See you next time.